It's good to be back with you again this morning. Last weekend, my family and I, we went to Sugar Creek and we stayed in an Airbnb home and got snowed in, just like you did as well. And so we weren't going to be here last Sunday, but neither were you. So it all worked out. We had a great time there. Uh, there were, we stayed at a house that was on top of just uh, hills, multiple hills. So we had sled riding hills. They were like skiing hills. And actually, you could only do- go down a couple times because it was such a workout getting back up the hill. We needed a four-wheeler is what we needed. That would have made it just right. So I'm trying to tally more and more reasons to get a four-wheeler. This was another reason. So hope you had fun last weekend. I hope that uh, you were able to rest. I was thankful for Blaine that he was willing to take time from his home to share his message with us, the message that God placed on our, our his heart. And I'm just so impressed with the college-age kids in our church. Like, I, I said it on, on the video, but God is doing something amongst them, and we want to be a part of that. We want to come alongside of that. Blaine did get to Australia safely, so thankfully he is back there. And, uh, yeah, so he's got more schooling to do. And I appreciated Blaine's message that God is faithful, and often... His, his, his faithfulness is, is sometimes sneaky, right? He's, but he's being faithful. Even when we're not aware of his faithfulness, we can rest assured that God is faithful. He is working. He is causing things to work out for our good. I'm so grateful for that truth. This morning, we're going to head back into our sermon series, The Upside Down Kingdom. And what we're doing is we're looking at the... <laughs> Of how God's kingdom is so much different than the kingdom of the world. And Jesus, when he came onto the scene, he, he was preaching, hey, the kingdom of God is at hand. So repent and believe the good news. In other words, the time has finally arrived. God's power is being unleashed in the world in a whole new way to establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven This is good news. Why is this good news? Because God's kingdom is so different than the kingdom of the world. And that's why we've given it this title, this sermon series, this title, The Upside Down Kingdom. And here's what we've learned so far as we've journeyed through the beginning of Matthew chapter 5. We haven't gotten too far because there's so much good just packed in to the first few verses. But we've learned this. That the kingdom of God is open to people who acknowledge that they don't have it all together. The kingdom of God is open to broken, messed up people who are willing to admit it. Willing to admit that they don't even live up to their own standards, let alone God's. Who mourn over this sinfulness. And mourn over the hurt that they've caused God, that they've caused others, and they have caused themselves. And who go to God realizing that they can't fix their brokenness and trust God to fix it instead. This is who the kingdom of God belongs to. 
They will receive mercy, Matthew 5 tells us. They're going to inherit the earth when God renews it. And they will experience a deep soul satisfaction. This is good news. And this is completely opposite of the kingdom of the world that says the good life is found in being wealthy or powerful or charting your own course or being beautiful hiding your weaknesses, and so forth and so on. And so today, we're going we're gonna to turn our attention to another beatitude of Jesus. And we're just going to look at one more. We're going to spend our whole message time looking at this beatitude. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Let me pray, and we'll check this. Very important verse out. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are an entirely different king than the kings of this world. Lord, we thank you that your kingdom, your rule in your reign is entirely different than the kingdoms of this world. Lord, we thank you that your kingdom is open to those who are broken, who are sinful, who need, who are in desperate need of help, that it's open to people that realize that we cannot fix ourselves. Thank you that your power has been unleashed in the world to bring healing to individuals that are poor in spirit. Lord, I pray that as we look at this next verse in this sermon, this next line in this sermon you gave, that we would be able to see the, the riches of your grace in this statement, and that we would walk out of here thinking more highly of you, that we would walk out of here having a greater awareness of how much we're loved by you, and that we would walk out of here wanting to join you on your mission to bring love and grace and renewal to hurting people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, the kingdom of this world is all about externals. It is. Outward appearances, right? We're bombarded with messages from the, this kingdom that you got to have a certain type of body. We're bombarded by messages that say you got to wear a certain kind of clothes, that you have to have a certain type of home, and that home needs to be decorated and furnished in a certain way, that you must live in this neighborhood, that you must have a certain job, that your children need to go to a certain school, that you have to have particular social media posts that you have to drive a certain type of car, and the list just goes on. Externals, outward appearance. And if you have these things, the kingdom of the world tells us that you will be satisfied, that you will find the happiness that you crave. If you just project a certain image then people will respect you, and that will make you feel good about yourself. 
We live in a resume culture. It's all about what skills you have, what you've achieved. We live in a resume culture. Now, I've been watching a documentary on the 70s, the decade of the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s. And it has totally hooked me. It's one of those documentaries where I'm staying up way too late and spending way too much time watching this, right? And here's what the documentary said about the 80s. It was a decade of success in excess is how they characterized the 80s. The stock market started to boom eventually in the 80s. The beginning, it was rough, but it started to boom. People were making tons of money from the stock market. Credit cards became, everybody had them. And so uh, commercialism and consumerism just exponentially grew in the 80s. Cable television had people not just comparing themselves with, their, with the Joneses, you know, the neighbors next door, but comparing their lifestyle with the entire country and the entire world. Externals, externals, externals. The lie that if we can just create the right set of circumstances, then we will have a deep, sustainable happiness. If we just mirror the lifestyle uh, to a great enough degree of the rich and famous, then we will have peace and we will have rest. And this is what makes Jesus' teaching in this one verse so radically different than even the message, this message that we still hear today that's all about externals. Jesus says that the good life is not found in what you do, as important as that is, but it is all about, life is all about the person you are becoming. Jesus taught that the quality of your behavior, it's important, but the quality of your heart is even more important. We just celebrated Martin Luther King Day, right? No doubt Dr. King was leaning on Jesus' words when he said this in his I have a dream statement. I have a dream that one day my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin but by the content of their character. How we Americans are so focused on externals and not the inward life of the hearts. You may wonder why Jesus placed so much emphasis on the hearts. Because there is, this is why, there's a particular heart condition that leads to life. And there's a particular heart condition that leads to death. And the particular heart condition that leads to life actually allows you and enables you to enjoy God's good gifts without them enslaving you. And it's this particular heart condition that can give you deep peace and deep joy even when your external circumstances are extremely difficult. And the good news that Jesus was announcing in this one verse 
is that there was good news because God's power was being unleashed to give people a pure heart so that they could have this heart condition that leads to the good life. You see, Jesus was announcing that people need heart surgery, and he is the heart surgeon that can perform it and make it function the way that it was always designed to function. Jesus knew, this is so important, that wrong behavior, as evil as it could be, was only a symptom of a greater problem, a mere symptom of a corrupt, broken, impure heart. And that's why Jesus, he'll later say in the book of Matthew, in verse, or chapter 15, verses 18 and 19, but those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, and blasphemies. You see, broken behavior is merely a symptom of a broken heart. Now, many of the main religions, what they teach is this. If you change your behavior, you're going to find the good life. So don't do this. Don't do that. Look here. Don't look there. Right? Touch this. Don't touch that. And it's a list of do's and don'ts. And what Jesus is saying is that you do not need a list of rules imposed on you from the outside that is going to adjust your behavior in some ways. What you need is an entire gut and remodel of the heart. And I'm your man. You need to be radically transformed in the part of you that is really you. And you can see then why this message was offensive to some. And it may be offending you right now. Some resp- it's either a comfort to people or it is offensive to people. Because it's offensive because what Jesus is saying, that the most inward part of you, the core of you, is messed up, and some people can't handle hearing that. You don't just need a little touch-up job on the outside. You need a whole gut and remodel. What do you mean I need a whole gut and remodel? What do you mean I'm dysfunctional at the very core of my being and my personality? And for some, too... The whole remodel process just seems too overwhelming, too daunting, too time-intensive, too costly that they never agree to it. But for those who see their need and are willing, the good news is that God's power is now available to repair and restore and fix your heart. Jesus's Office is open for business, and there are plenty of appointments that he has available for you to come to him, get on the surgeon's table so he can go to work. 
He will give you a pure heart, guaranteed. He guarantees his word. So the question then becomes, what exactly is a pure heart? And how does one lead to the sustainable life of joy and peace and inward happiness despite external circumstances? Well, let's first be clear on what Jesus is referring to when he uses the word heart. I've already said that it's the, the, the most inward part of you. It's the core of your being. Here's another way to think about it. It is the command center of your thoughts, your feelings, in your choices. It's the invisible space inside of you that thinks, feels, and chooses. And again, this is who we are at the core of us. This is who we are at our core. Now, the next question is then, well, what is a pure heart? If a, what is a pure heart? What is a pure command center? Well, think about it. When we say something that when we say something is pure chocolate, what do we mean? We mean it is unmixed with un- other ingredients. When we say something is pure gold, what do we mean? It is unmixed by other properties, materials, elements. So this starts to get us closer to what it means to have a pure heart. Pure gold, pure chocolate, it's one integrated whole. And so, from this, we can surmise that a pure heart is unmixed. It's one integrated whole. It's focused on one thing. I think there are some passages, too, that can help us flesh out what a pure heart is. One is Psalm 24. Check out these verses in Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol nor sworn deceitfully. Here's another verse that I think can help us flesh out what it means to have a pure heart. James 4.8. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So here's what we can glean from these two short passages. A pure heart is a heart that is undivided in its allegiance to God. For it doesn't lift itself up to idols, right? And it's not double-minded. It's not trying to worship God and money. It's not trying, it's not worshiping God and career, God and family, God and the approval of others. It is seeking its ultimate significance, security, and satisfaction in God and in God alone. And if the person with the pure heart has a family or a career or has wealth or has approval from others, they simply view these things as a gift from God that they will use and leverage for his glory. And if they ever have to pick between God and something else, guess who they're picking? They're picking God. The pure in heart grant lordship also. This is important too. The pure in heart grant grant lordship to God over 
every part of their heart. Not part of it. They don't withhold any part of their heart from God. They say to God, hey, you are Lord over my money. May your will be done. You are Lord over my possessions. May your will be done. You are Lord over my marriage. May, my, may your will, not mine, may your will be done. You are Lord over my time. May your will be done. You are Lord over my talents and skills. May your will be done. You are Lord over my health. May your will be done. You are Lord over my future. May your will be done. Your will, your way, your time. That's what the pure in heart does. The pure in heart are also not deceitful. They're not two-faced. They don't say one thing and do another. Their yeses are yeses and their noes are noes. They don't wear a mask and try and keep up appearances. They don't seek to manipulate God and others. They're sincere. They're forthright. Completely committed to God. The command center of a person that is pure in heart, their thoughts, their feelings, and their choices are fixated on loving God and loving other people. And you know what? This sort of heart can't but help live in all kinds of ways that bring beauty into the world, that bring compassion into the world, that bring mercy into the world, forgiveness, grace into the world. Now, there's another question that arises here. If one aspect of the good news that the kingdom of God is at hand and that God's power is available to purify impure hearts... How do I tap into this power? How do I tap into it? And do I have a part to play in my purification? And I believe that the Bible teaches us that there is both a passive and active participation part that we play in our purification process. And that's why we find statements like the one I just read to you in James 4, 8 that command us to purify our hearts. You purify your hearts. Act. Do. And then there are statements like we find in Proverbs 29 that say and indicate that we can't purify our hearts. Proverbs 29 says, who can say I've made my heart clean, that I'm pure from my sin? Of course, the answer is no one. And that's why I believe we have to understand, and this is crucial, the difference between positional purity and practical purity. Let me explain the difference between both of these. When we come to Jesus in repentance and faith, Christ, his pure heart is credited to our account. And with his pure heart credited to our account, God no longer sees us as people with impure hearts. He no longer treats us as people with impure hearts. He no longer is counting our sin against us. We have been placed in a position of purity before God. Theo theologians use another word to describe this. They say it's justification. And in this positional purity, we are rather passive. We don't do anything to make this happen. 
We simply believe it and receive it from the hands of Jesus. Now, the next step is, now that we've been reconciled to God and we've been been declared pure in his sight, we are now able to have a relationship with him, then the work begins for practical purity. And this is us actually being changed into people that have hearts that are pure and that actually live in pure ways. Meaning, in increasing measure, our thoughts, our feelings, and our choices become fused with the thoughts, feelings, and choices of God. And this practical working of our purity starts at the moment of conversion, and it will go on until we go to be with Jesus or Jesus returns for us. And in this practical purification of our hearts, we have a part to play. We put forth effort. It is an active, not a passive participation. By the grace and power that God gives us, we engage in spiritual disciplines that put us before the feet of Jesus, where he goes to work and and does heart surgery on us. Spiritual disciplines are a way of getting on the surgeon's table. And so we engage in Bible study and meditation, and God transforms us. We engage in prayer, and God transforms us. Little by little by little. We engage in observing the Sabbath, God transforms us. We engage in fasting. We engage in serving the poor. We engage in worship with the Christian community. This is transformative. We carry each other's burdens. We live lives of generosity. These spiritual disciplines, God uses them as means of grace to repair our broken hearts. And we're putting forth some effort, aren't we? We got to make time. We got to engage our mind, our hearts. There's effort. One uh, discipline that I've found particularly helpful in getting on the heart surgeon's operation table is regular heart examination in the presence of God. I think we would do extremely well to pray day 24 prayer regularly. Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We pray that and we sit and we listen. In our culture, we are so utterly consumed with busyness that we have no space for heart examination. And we wonder why we're still hot messes. We wonder why there's no contentment. We wonder why there's no joy, no peace, no life. We are often unaware of our thoughts, our feelings, and our choices unless they get to a point that we can't ignore them anymore. And then we finally, in some rushed, hurry way, try and pay attention to them. How's it working for you? Even though we have received positional purity as Christians, 
we often fall back into old habits of the heart. We can even do good things out of the old habits of the heart. For example, we can engage in mercy and compassionate acts all so that people will see our good deeds. And not glorify God in heaven, but glorify us. When people compliment us, we can even say, oh, glory to God, isn't Jesus great? Praise the Lord. But inwardly, we're thinking, yeah, I did pretty good. In this case, our motive for praising God is so that people will praise us, that they will see us as this humble Christian. As a pastor, I can want my church to be a praying church, but that motivation is driven by because I believe prayer will increase the number of people who attend here, which will then increase my glory and reputation as a leader in the eyes of other people. We can write checks to support organizations that are working in tough, impoverished neighborhoods so that we can avoid, so that we can invo- avoid engaging with those very same people but still feel like we're helping. We can serve at CityServe as an attempt to earn God's favor and his forgiveness. We can mention somebody's need for prayer so that we can gossip about them. And so that we can feel better about our own miserable life. Our marriage can be in shambles. And we start working hard to mend it, motivated only by what we might lose if our spouse leaves us. Not motivated by their hurt and pain. We can study the Bible. We can attend Bible classes motivated by gaining the ability to win Bible disagreements. And so that people will look at us and think, wow, what an intellect that person has. Just because we have been given a new heart in Christ doesn't mean we're immune to being driven by impure thoughts, feelings, and choices. And so... We must examine our hearts in the presence of Jesus on a regular basis. And you can examine your heart. It's, it's simple to do. You get before God, and maybe you think about yesterday, or maybe you think about the previous week, and you ask a series of questions that are penetrating questions that have the ability to help you see your impurities with God's grace. Here's a question. Did fear drive your thoughts, feelings, and choices yesterday or this past week, whatever period you're reflecting on? Fear of loss? Fear of rejection? Fear of disapproval? Fear of failure? Fear of abandonment? Fear of the unknown? Fear of the future? While certain types of fear are healthy, many of them are unhealthy because this is why they're unhealthy and why they're impure. Because when we fear, often we're just feeling what we might lose. 
which is often a very selfish thing, and also is disrespectful to God because we're not trusting that he can take care of us. And fear renders us useless for other people because it so makes us focus on us. Have you been driven by fear? Or have you been considering yourself dead to fear, dead to it, Let me ask you this, did anger and unforgiveness drive your thoughts, feelings, or choices yesterday or the past week? Have you been hurt and now you're making others pay because you've been hurt? And you're not forgiving them the way God forgave you, and you're not remembering and living out that vengeance is God, not yours? Did you resist this impulse? Did you consider yourself dead to it? Did the comparison trap drive your thoughts, feelings, or choices? Remember, pride doesn't just want what others have. It wants what others have and more. Did you resist? Our old hearts want glory for ourselves. Did you resist this impulse? Did you consider it dead? Did you give it no mental heart? space. Did shame drive your thoughts, feelings, or choices? Here's another question. We often think of shame as the opposite of pride, but often our response to shame reveals how prideful we truly are. Because here's the thing. When you're experiencing shame, our response is often to try and conceal it or cover it. And when we're trying to conceal it, It's our pride is not letting people see our shame because we don't want them to think less of us. Our pride won't let it happen. And then we remain in that that bondage to that shame because we're not bringing it to other people where healing can come. That God can use that to bring healing to you. Your pride is letting you be trapped in your shame. Another reason that our shame is often prideful is we try and cover it up, which means we try to create a righteousness for ourselves that makes us feel okay, or an attempt to try and make us feel okay about our shame instead of realizing that only Jesus' righteousness can cover us. You're trying to fix it. So you ask these penetrating questions, and then you make a commitment. You commit that you are going to give these sort of motivations, these impure ways of the heart, the old habits of the heart, you're going to give them no quarter, no operating space. You, if one of those things starts coming into you, you recognize it. You don't try and suppress the thought, but you don't engage it. You don't feed it. When fear, a thought of fear comes into you, You recognize it, but you don't ride on the what-if train. When anger comes into you over somebody that's deeply hurt you, you you commit to not uh, feeding that anger by playing out in your mind how you're going to get back at that person because then it just grows. Next time you start your life, uh, not your life, your heart starts comparing your life 
with another person's, and you start arguing whether your life is better than theirs or if their life is better than yours, nope, I'm dead to that. You reorient yourself to what you are presently doing. You remind yourself that you are secure, significant in God, and it is in him that satisfaction is found. As we make these commitments, as we place ourselves before Jesus, as we trust that God is going to give us the grace to think and to feel and to choose differently, we are transformed and changed. Look, I've heard it said like this. Our partnership with God, think about it, and this isn't a perfect analogy because no analogy is perfect, but think about it this way. It's like power steering. Who's doing the heavy lifting when you're driving? The car is. The power steering is. But are you actively participating? Yeah, you have a role to play in that, right? And you, if you've ever had power steering go out, you know how much the power steering is doing the heavy lifting. And if you try and drive without the power steering, it will exhaust you. Some of you are exhausted Because you are not making yourself available for Jesus. You're not placing yourself at his feet on a regular basis. You're not engaging in the disciplines that he uses to bring life to you. And you are exhausted. Do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? You got to ask yourself that question. I think a lot of people, oh, yeah, do you really want to get well? And here's the blessing, and I'll end with this. Jesus says that the pure in heart will see God. That is the reward. That is the blessing. We will see God the more and more that we are transformed in the heart by his grace and our behavior changes through that, the more and more we become aware of God's power, his goodness, his ways, his will, his heart. And the more we see God for who he is and the more our view of him is elevated, our heart is elevated. And we then look forward to the day when he returns and we see him. We see his face. We see all his glory in all of its fullness. It's going to be amazing. And so, a lot of people were making New Year's resolutions, right? Or have made New Year's resolutions. And they're all mainly based on outward appearances. I'm going to get in the shape. I'm going to eat healthy. I'm going to sleep more. I'm going to make more money. Will you in 2019 commit to a partnership with God where your heart is purified? Will you commit to an inner resolution? Pray with me. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you are the great heart surgeon, that in your coming and what you did through your life, death, and resurrection and exaltation, that your power is now available for anyone who wants to get well. 
Lord, I pray that each person in this room would commit to placing themselves at your feet where you can do a deep, profound, transforming work inside of them that then leads to changes in their lifestyle. It's in Jesus' name that I pray, amen.